Feeling tired of the gaming table? Want to hear foul-mouthed jackasses poke fun at gaming companies when they screw up? Want an honest, street-level opinion from a team of gamers that call it like it is? Then Blunt Force Gamers may be the podcast for you. Listener discretion advised. Boys and girls, ladies and gentlemen, and gamers of all ages, it is us. You know who we are. It's on the intro title. And I am Game Goblin, sitting side by side in our studio with no headphones because I messed up yet again for another week in a row. Oops. And it is. Kazarkan, the Lord Dragon. And. Darth Blasphemous, hail to the dark side. Okay, the dripping stopped. See, all we needed to do was get through the intro. <laughs> Bam! Problem solved. Ah, oh, can you hand me my drink? Yeah, hand him his drink. So the, while the, he's uh, Apple thingy. God damn it, dude! We're recording. <laughs> I just said the Apple thingy. Oh, the Apple thing. Okay, so we're gonna be all super casual about this episode, as people super can. Super casual. You know, super casual. It is nice and rainy outside, like crazy rain, and I am feeling cozy. Yeah. I just want to curl up in a blanket right now. This is the greatest uh, time of the year for me anyway. I love this time of year. The days get shorter, which is a bonus. The nights get cooler. Firewood starts burning nice in the fireplace. And during this time of year, of course, is when I do most of my kickback and reading. Mm-hmm. I just ordered four new books. Jesus. Yeah. Huh. And so we're going to go through and discuss and talk about inspiration in role-playing games, uh, predominantly coming from the aspect of books, written material. Oh, boy. And boy, am I getting inspired right now. And, you know, I give Kevin Symbieta a lot of shit. I give him a verbose, vindictive amount of shit. I spew venom with veracity <laughs> with the amount of shit I give Kevin Symbieta. Because it's a love-hate relationship, but he there's it's like any pile of trash, right? I mean you go down to the junkyard and you're looking to, you know, maybe build a cabin out in the woods and someday I might live long enough to do it, and a junkyard would be a great place to pick up knickknacks, bric a bracks, and scrap and build your cabin. Books can be the same way when you're trying to write stuff, and as much shit as I give Kevin Symbieta, his writing is my junkyard of inspiration, and I love to go rifle through the books of the Palladium Megaverse and find little things here and there that help upgrade my games. Uh, Just neat little shit. There's neat little shit, little ideas and things, and even though it is a wildly unbalanced game system, I actually love the game system for the fact that it's unbalanced. The world's not fair. The world is definitely not fair, and as my players have found out, unlike Dungeons and Dragons, sometimes when you shoot at something and get its attention, it will wreck your shit. <laughs> so one mega juicer. One mega juicer later. Ow. They've also learned that a stage one juicer is a very dangerous thing because they will fight to the death happily. They want to die and take as many of you with them as they can. It is not a good situation to be in. So, what was the battle cry? What was it? Better to burn out than fade away. Yep, it's totally mad. It's totally a Kurgan moment. Mm. Better to burn out than fade away, and that's juicer lifestyle, dude. And I know Symbieta, um, where he's coming from on some of the stuff he's written in his game materials, and it's hard not to look at it and just groan in some cases. But in others, it's fucking wondrous. And honestly, strangely enough, it was the first core rulebook of any game that I picked up back in, I want to say, 92 or 93. Of all the game books that I could have grabbed first. You know, and there was plenty of these ones about dungeon delving. And I just happened to find some post-apocalyptic roleplay book, which is Mortal Kombat before Mortal Kombat was a thing. Crazy. Before that, though, in books, uh, when I first started getting into roleplay prime, like really actually started getting into it, uh, the first things I would do is, like when I was playing Vampire the Masquerade, of course, uh, back in the late 90s, 
Did you just shiver? That looks so weird. Anyway, when I was playing Vampire... <laughs> Someone um, forgot a coat. The uh, the main inspiration I got from that, from any books, of course, is, is you go... I went right to the source. Bram Stoker's Dracula is undoubtedly one of the best books ever written for vampires, in my opinion. I have to add those three words. Uh, because the... Because the book can be taken so many different ways. It can be taken as a discussion on the Victorian era of the times and how sensuality and sexuality were repressed. And you had to take on the demeanor of being a good lady or a good gentleman. And you could take it from that aspect or you could take it as one of the greatest love stories ever told because there's a dude who literally cursed God because the love of his life had died. And he's like, God, fuck you. I love her more than I do you. And God's like, ah, oh, fuck you. <laughs> and then the guy who gets fucked lives long enough to meet the reincarnation of his dead uh, lady friend and decides, ha God, I'm going to take her for myself. <laughs> Jokes and shena- you, shenanigans. Like, even though this is like one of the most dark, horrible, monster kind of peoples, he still has that ounce of redemption in him because he loves somebody else more than himself kind of stuff. You also have the dark horror aspect of it, of just, you know, putting chills down your spine of the, the weird horror elements and the corruption of Renfield. So that's one of the things I love about Dracula is it can be taken so many different ways. So when I first started running Vampire, that was like my go-to book, naturally. Uh, for fantasy games, however, and I still do this, my number one go-to is either Conan... <laughs> Obviously. Uh, For reasons. 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 That's enough. We get it. I had a very liberal childhood when it came to media consumption. The rules were, if it's on the shelf and I either want to watch it, read it, I can. If it's a book on the shelf or a movie, I can watch it or read it. It didn't matter what it was. But if it was a horror movie and I had nightmares, my, uh, the problem was, you know, like if I watched Nightmare on Elm Street at seven years old and it gave me nightmares, my parents flat out told me I would be the one to deal with the consequences of my actions. Therefore, no banging on their door saying I had a nightmare. So, I was, so I learned at a young age to be careful with scary movies. Uh, you know, especially at that point in my life when scary movies actually were scary to me. But with books, I could read any of them I wanted. So, of course, there was, you know, The Hobbit, um, Ender's War. Mm-hmm. Also Ender's Game. Well, Ender's Game, yeah, that one. That whole uh, He series. had the Dune series on the bookshelf. He had pun- tons of uh, Star Trek books. All kinds of Pulp Fiction Oh, crazy amounts of Pulp Fiction. Uh, some Fritz Lieber books. Just, if I wanted to read a book, I could. It didn't matter. And, of course, I was gravitated towards more of the ones with pictures in them than anything else. And Conan has some of the most awesome titties. I mean, pictures <laughs> on the cover. <laughs> so I would naturally gravitate towards those. And, of course, the movies had come out uh, just not long before uh, I started reading novels at that age. And then I got hooked on the Zant series. Hmm. And that, uh... Which is a fucked up combo. So when I'm running a D&D game, <laughs> it's about 50% Conan of Aquilonia, or Cole the Conqueror, and 50% Xanth. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Jesus fucking Christ. That makes everything so much clearer now. Does, does that make a lot of the pieces of the puzzle come together now? <laughs> it really does. Yes. It really does. Holy Toledo. That yeah, so those amazing. are my... Yeah, for, when it comes to books... Uh, jumping into my roleplay games that's where my inspirations mainly come from uh, especially when I first started was either Xanth or Conan what about you Kaz now that I've <laughs> let the cat out of the bag <laughs> the Xanth novels were they were pretty fun um, I had a, I, I liked the uh, by Roger Zelazny it's a two separate five part series it's uh, the Magic Kingdom of Amber. That was a very interesting one where, like, tarot cards were actually something with meaning. Not re- not as relevant to the real world, but as relevant to the world that he created. Like, particularly notable deeds, you'd get, you know, you'd get a fate card. 
right? You'd, you'd get your image painted on a fate card. And that was really cool to me. And another series I liked, um, fuck, back in high school, so, decade and a half ago, was, uh... Now you know how I feel. <laughs> um, was Justino no, was Ross. about a decade ago. What? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, I graduated in 10. Yeah. Yeah. Decade and a half ago. That's, that's about where I was reading these books. So. God, time. But, um... Yeah, I graduated in 93. I was too. Old timer. Actually, yeah, by the time you did that, I think I was one and a half. <laughs> yeah. We're not here to date ourselves, gentlemen. Oh, I but, love dating myself. I'm beautiful. <laughs> I love me. But I other... love me some goblin action. Yeah, we have... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, his jowls just started to flutter with It wasn't the jowls, it was a sound effect, but yeah, the jowls, you know, they help. <laughs> I do love a pair of floppy jowls, and I got great ones. <laughs> it was sarcasm, go on. You're terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> No, um, the Quantum Gravity series is an interesting science fantasy blend. I mean, the main characters are a cyborg and an elf. A rocker elf at that. So it's it's a very interesting series. Um, starts off a little rough because it feels like an interview and then it just sort of immediately goes into the story with no preamble. So That's weird in its own right, but... Um, I remember reading the Ringworld series. I remember reading a lot more in the, the soft science fiction and the fantasy series where I think my two big uh, draw zones. I don't know. Rendezvous with Rama was pretty fun. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah I uh, forgot about that one. I read a book, and we talked about this actually last episode. One of the, the, the places I hate to go most. And strangely, when it comes to D&D, one of my inspirations for my D&D books that will never happen because I have never read the books is anything with Greyhawk on the title or Drizzle, Drool, the Dark Elf. <laughs> the Dark Elf. Or Hasselhoff or any of those characters. The, the D&D books never... I was never attracted to those. I really never wanted it. Yeah, fuck that. What, Dragonlance, uh, Dragons of Winter I never read those good. books because I, for some reason, there, there's a part of me, like, and I, I guess it's because I've seen this happen from movies and the games so much, you know, is a movie will come out and people will incorporate the shit into a roleplay game shamelessly, and I, I never really wanted the influence of a D&D &D book, uh, a published novel, to influence my game. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's because if I read that book and like my players read that book, then my game would become more like that book and less like something that could stand on its own two legs. I don't know. Uh, but the only one that I have read is I Strahd, a book that came out in the early 90s and actually really well written. I love the shit out of that book. So whenever I did anything, uh, either Gothic Horror or Dungeons & Dragons, I Strahd had a good influence on that one. Just because, well, it's Strahd. He's a vampire. <laughs> the 90s were like a decade of vampires. Well, that was yeah. The, yeah. And then they came back in the 2010s and all of a sudden they were sparkly. No, they did not come back in the 2010s. That's a fucking fairy. <laughs> Do not defame vampires. A horrible, no, bad, an emo facsimile of vampire. as a vampire. <clears throat> no, he is not. No, no, he is not. He, I'm with Goblin. I shall one. gather get around the Council of Elder Goths. <laughs> <laughs> and I bet you. Hold on, we got to make sure the place is wheelchair accessible. Then, you know what? That can be. You arranged. can make jokes like that all you want, but you know the punk yes, grunge movement would never have happened without us. Mm. So eat a dick. Nah, I'm good. A big uh, sloppy donkey cock for you, blasphemous. <laughs> Not on your best day. Um, so. <laughs> For me, I don't know. I guess I just kind of got more the the classical upbringing with the books, because the vast majority of what I read, which has really inspired my stuff, is the Greek myths, um, Hawaiian legends and tales, a whole bunch of folklores from New Mexico, and you know. A bunch so you of went the sort of the the mythology 
That was a lot of the books that were given to me and put in my hands. Then there's also the classic books that we were reading in school in the 90s and 2000s, which was, you know... Um, Curious George. No. Clifford. <laughs> Huck Finn. I, you know, I never actually read a Clifford book. I watched the show. But, uh, no, it was the... Um, fuck, the Treehouse series. Oh, where they, they would read Magic Treehouse? Magic Treehouse. Um, Goosebumps, which was great. Uh, Say Cheese and Die is the best one, in my opinion. Um, then it was the Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, all three volumes, where they were, you know, short stories. And it was more of the fol- folklore base is what I came up from. The legends and stories people tell to each other all over the place. And when it came to actual fantasy and stuff, yes, I read Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. I still have them on my shelf over there. They're... The original 1970s paperbacks, fucking pulp fiction style. Um, I read uh, a couple of the Star Wars novels. I think I read like the second book in the Thrawn trilogy or whatever. Uh, back uh, when I yes, the Pawn Thrawn. <clears throat> Skyrim reference. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that that's more where I come from with the books is more of the... The legends and stuff. So a lot of my characters are based off books I've read more recently. Um, a lot of uh, Neil Gaiman's work, which you guys over the years have heard me talk endlessly about, because well, favorite author was anymore. I'm kind of meh, but um, I'm playing a character right now who is almost entirely based off of uh, characters from the Count of Monte Cristo. Another amazing story. By Alexandre Dumas, one of the few Frenchmen I have respect for. Uh, yeah, we've heard your sentiments before on that. Gary and I'm still trying to figure out how his name is uh, properly spelled. Um, I don't know, he churches no, no, no. it up a little more. No, no, I'm talking about Jacopo. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Jacopo is a good character. And, and the strange thing is about those books, and this is something that happens, and I sometimes try to do this ever so slightly especially when uh, doing NPCs when I'm running games is NPCs who have similar traits to either Jacopo or E um shit um fuck what was his name out of Moby Luigi Vampa no 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 uh, out of Moby Dick the Samoan dude oh uh Quikway yeah Quikway yeah, uh, Quikway was best. Quikway was awesome sauce. Uh, so I do. I try to pull in NPCs who are kind of like that, and like they're stoic characters, or they're the voice of reason who can tell you know when the players are about to do stupid shit. They'll be like, um, "Boss, that is not a good idea." <laughs> yeah, you, you'll see the. Uh, you've already got your revenge. You can take it and go now. <laughs> so you know, I, I do kind of throw in NPCs from time to time who try to play the voice of reason. Unfortunately, player characters are going to be player characters. <laughs> but it's my way of being an, uh, doing exposition. So some of my NPCs, yeah, they'll wind up being either Jacopo or Quikways, uh, which are very good characters to have in an RPG who are just there to not take the camera away from the main characters, but give them a gentle nudge from time to time and say, uh, I've got a bad feeling about this boss. They're supposed to be the voice of the audience. Basically, yeah. Yeah, it's a fun idea, and it's... It's, it's always interesting to see how that those kind of characters are received, you know, player side as well, in its own right. It's kind of a well, interesting study on players. Yeah, it is a very interesting study on players, and I've so far boiled it down to a dichotomy. And I know all, all dichotomies are false dichotomies, but it kind of comes down to a dichotomy. If the NPC is female, all the players want to fuck it. If it's a dude, they want to murder it. And take all the stuff. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is interesting, but... <laughs> players are gonna play her. Yeah. yeah. But as for, you know, worlds and stuff, I draw a lot of my current influence from Magic the Gathering and a lot more of... Uh, I don't really want to say, like, the anime world, but... The anime has a lot of good ideas. It's just in how they're implemented... And RPGs are one of those mediums that you can get really screwy with if you try and play anime. Yeah, I've never pulled any manga into my games at all that I know of. For some reason, maybe it's because I'm old and everything and I just don't understand, but there seems to be this divide between 
the way stories are structured and built and the characters interact with each other in a manga that does not exactly translate well. Like, the core storyline stuff would. Like, if Attack on Titan never made it to Western Shores in the mainstream, but it was still like an undercurrent that barely anybody knew about, mm -hmm. that would make a great game setting that the player characters get injected into a world where, like, giants are totally real and are trying to attack what's left of any village available. And the player munchies. characters become basically the scout core. That would make for an awesome game setting because the scout core would be the uh, adventurers going out and exploring. They get separated from the main. Maybe go on this uh, quest where they learn why the giants are running around doing what they're doing. And, you know, so it would be incorporating D&D with Attack on Titan, but I've never... Uh, it would feel like you're sort of cheating out. It would feel kind of like I'm cheating out, but I would be, I'd, at that point I'd be copy pasty the, the fucking storyline yeah. over. But for the most part, the way mangas are written is they're not exactly super in-depth. I mean, they give you a lot of the information well, on the Well, not most of the new ones. Yeah. Um, you, you really got to go digging for the old stuff that's, you know, tinged yellow and, you know, starting to curl at the edges. And pages but stick together. I mainly, <laughs> only certain ones. Mm -hmm. uh, I mainly take characters. Uh, uh, I took from Yu Yu Hakusho, uh, Grandma, the... The one that teaches Yusuke how to do the spirit gun and all that crap. Um, I literally made her into a gold dragon in the world I run. <laughs> and she, whenever she appears, she just is a little, like, old gnome lady. Who's, you know, she just always magically appears where she needs to be. Um, I've taken stuff, like, from Fairy Tale, the, uh, the, the dark tower or whatever the fuck it was just a spire in the middle of the ocean that oh you know, that tower power. of solomon crap yeah where basically it's right at a very powerful ley line nexus yeah and it's drawing that power to try and do whatever it does well, yeah so, yeah um, folks are going to get inspiration from different sources and like i said um we all got different uh, opinions on this. We're not going to agree 100% on everything. And that's great. Every GM uh, should develop their own style. Mm -hmm. And Blasphemous over here, he's taking mangas, which I predominantly wouldn't do. And that means you are going to get a massively different game experience if we both are GMing on the exact same level overall. You're still going to get a different experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, Storyline-wise, and your characters are going to have a different story uh, experiences. You're going to have different highs and lows in your game. Even if it's starting from the same point, like yeah. you meet in a tavern, branch point, yeah. and from there, you know, Blasphemous group is going to go one way, and Goblin's group is going to go completely different direction. And that's part of the joy of roleplay. It's fantastic. It's the same story can be told by two different storytellers who have different inspirations, and you'll get two different stories, and it's just fucking phenomenal well all opinion. three of us uh have the capacity at least to run a version of the dollhouse you have the original i have my take and you have your take because we're both the inheritors of the living world campaign and right. we're taking it in very different directions right. um and that that's just sort of the thing about it is we're drawing on the different inspirations like right now i just redesigned part of the dollhouse to run a halloween special and I'm, I'm drawing from uh, was it the Trick or Treat movie, the Chucky movies, Children of the Corn, a bunch of shit like that. Yeah, you guys should pray to God I never go for a volume three on that one. Oh, I dare you! I fucking dare you! <clears throat> no, not like the Tumo Horrors has a bad reputation. If I did a Dollhouse V three, I mean, this it's been bad enough. I've had two groups, just. The first group lit the end uh, dungeon treasure chest on fire. <laughs> nope, nope, <laughs> they just, nope. They, they look inside, and there's like gold and dolls, and they're like, yeah, just pour oil on it, light it on fire. And there was like 70, 75,000 gold pieces up in flames. <laughs> just they didn't want all the magic stuff in there. They're like, nope. Hard and nope. the second group got halfway through the dungeon and walked out because they were defeated by a level three animated construct sorcerer. Who's just spamming scrolls and illusions. Who's just spamming illusions. <laughs> yeah, which, which reminds me, the fun thing is Grumby is now the only thing tying the dollhouse to this reality. Because his body wound up there, but his mind is trapped in the dollhouse itself. See? Well, that's a terrible place, because Grumby, uh, 
Remember the Dollhouse, uh, both version one and two. The and this was something I I wasn't inspired by a book, but Grumby being an animated construct who has spent uh, all of his formative years away from other living organisms has no. He doesn't have the concept of death in the same way that we do. He doesn't have this concept of death. He doesn't have the concept of emotional duress. He doesn't have a concept of physical pain. He doesn't understand these things because he never underwent them from outside sources. Right. And so he's doing his job is, I got to protect the master. The master's asleep. He's been dead for 300 years. He's asleep. It's fine. Just go away. But that's the thing is, right now, since Grumby has known the dollhouse so well, and now that it basically exists in a pocket dimension within the remains of his body, and he's the only thing keeping it in existence, it's it his, can now it is warp both. and manipulate depending on whatever traumas and things he's seen when he has visited the outside world. So you're using it as a dual uh, dual anchor. One yeah. for gr- one, It's Grumby's home. He will mm-hmm. always have a connection there. And Grumby is from there, so the connection will go both ways. Yeah. It's in a feedback loop. Grumby's got this new little friend called Jack. And oh, Jack is so adorable. I want one. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'm serious. I want one. I'll make that a player character. It'll be a goblin wearing a pumpkin on his head. <laughs> oh, which reminds me, um, my significant other has something to show you uh, on the computer before you leave. Oh, thank the gods it's on the computer. Yeah. Yeah, nothing bad has ever been shown on screen on a computer. Anyway. Well, it involves Hero Forge. Oh. <laughs> oh. Anyway, back to books. So, with books and stuff, there's all kinds of really fun things to draw from. Like, right now, that's the whole reason I bought Fat Matt's collection for $200 was because I mainly wanted to have a giant fucking reference library, and I paid basically a dollar a book. It's a good price. Like, no matter where you go, a dollar a book is a pretty solid rate. Almost the entire Vampire version 2 uh, books. <laughs> oh, I said almost. Just Vampire. No? no? no. Not, I figured I was missing no. all the werewolf and everything else, but I figured that was no, most I, of Vampire. I, He's dismissing the system, not your target. Yeah. No. <laughs> Both? Uh, before the Cess Queen moved into my three-bedroom apartment and destroyed a year of my life and took me for about 14.5 grand. He's and not I, bitter, guys. I, I'm not bitter at all. Man, um, he goes from too much sugar one week to too much salt the other. Oh, dude, there's He's not trying to salt. balance out. He's got to work on Anyway, <laughs> um, as Kazrakan well knows, uh, my wrist collection was god-awful huge. The next collection that I had besides that was my vampire collection. Mm-hmm. And that, on the bookshelf I have in my bedroom, the vampire collection I had took up two shelves. Two yeah. shelves. My... my bookcase is three feet wide, so that would be from end to end, six feet of books, no duplicates. And it was nothing but Vampire the Masquerade. And a little bit of Vampire the uh, Next Step when they fucking uh, did Revised, which was yeah, bullshit. See, most of mine is the Revised, I believe. Yeah, most of yours is Revised, but for Vampire the Masquerade, I had like, uh, I even had Berlin by Night in uh, first printing in German. Nice. Yeah. Like, I was really adamant about finding those books and fucking buying them. It didn't matter. Uh, to say I was a gaming addict for VTM is an understatement, and actually, as far as books that provide inspiration, uh, one of the things I really loved about the old Vampire the Masquerade books was all the short stories they put in them. Uh, mm-hmm. Mark Reindot Hagen, or however the last name is, did a great bang-up job with what he was given as far as the lore. I mean, yeah, looking back on it now, it's a bit childish, um... But what would he had to work with as far as concept and everything? He did a bang up job uh, mm-hmm. uh, for being a, a writer of his magnitude, his magnificence, whatever you want to call it. Auspice. Uh, auspice. Well, he had uh, his writing skill set. I'm not exactly 100% sure it should have been utilized for role playing books, but he is a really good writer in his own right. And just reading the short stories he wrote. 
were just phenomenal. And they, they filled out and fleshed out the Vampire the Masquerade world so much more three-dimensionally. Yeah. You know, yeah. Like almost any question you had would be in there. And you read it, and you get the answer to your question, and then you have two more questions. And I'm like, oh, you sick fuck, I see what you did. <laughs> and now I'm going to go back and answer that first question, now i got two more questions off that. And that's the way vampires should be. It's always questions leading to more questions. And I really like that, because you get an explanation and a question with the explanation. It keeps Wheels within wheels. It's, within wheels. I don't know if it's wheels, wheels within wheels, but it's kind of like that's a string that once it. you think you get near the end of that string, you find out there's a little bit more, and then a little bit more. And it's, ooh, piece of candy. Ooh, piece well, of candy. think of it more like this way. You're out digging in the backyard. You find, say, a root, and you're like, oh, I want to find the end of this root. You keep digging, and the more dirt you pull away, the more root you find. Exactly. It, it kept me going. And as far as writing inspirations, uh, Mark Ryan Dothagen did a bang-up job in the Vampire the Masquerade books. And uh, cock-waving aside as to how large my collection was before Everything her. went sideways. Yeah, until I had to start selling role-play books in order to afford Top Ramen. Um, God damn that cunt. I'm not salty. I'm not bitter at all. <laughs> I I really don't care if she's walking on the street and gets sideswiped by a passing truck with a loose front bumper that guts her and stretches her entrails across four miles of turf before they figure out that they're dragging a pair of dangling legs behind them across pavement while the torso is still left behind miles ago, still screaming and writhing in pain and her legs are missing. I don't care. I... I no, it's behind me. <laughs> I, I, that part of my life is a closed chapter. I don't mind anymore. I'm just saying that if something were to happen, it would be no skin off my nuts. Probably no skin off of the uh, lie quietly eating its way through her flesh. Anyway, uh, I'm just saying Mark <laughs> Ryan Dahagen wrote a really great horror setup. Mm -hmm. and going through the short stories in that and the way it strings you along and that's a, a thing that we need to remember as GMs is to be able to keep that hook on our players but not tug it so tightly that it's being railroady yeah. but just leave enough of the bait out so the players can latch onto the bait and keep going ooh it's, piece of candy it, ooh, ooh piece, piece of candy. candy it's basically it's tough but it's so rewarding when it works out because the players uh, usually get the idea that everything is going so effortlessly and they're getting the, uh, the obvious clues, but they don't feel it's obvious while the GM is just planting seeds and letting what grows grows. Mm -hmm. And letting the players write half, half yeah, the story. Yeah, so the players think, oh yeah, well, you know, we got this clue, let's go after that. And it seems to actually lead them in the right direction. And they're like, aha, we got the right idea the first time. We're so clever, we're so smart. And that's, you know... A really good GM uh, trait right there is if they can get convince the players that they're taking the right direction without being led. Yeah. Yeah. So that's one of the things I really like about Hagen's writings, especially in the vampire books, is he tosses in all these ideas and he's doing it quietly. So when you incorporate these ideas into your vampire game, you're basically doing the same thing and then just passing it along to your players. You know, it's like, oh, I'm such a smart GM. I threw this idea in. Meanwhile, you really didn't. The author of the books did. And your players feel smart because they latched onto the clever ideas that you put in the game that the original writer threw in the game. It's just fantastic. <laughs> I love it. Game Masterception. Game Masterception. Seriously, oh. that's basically what it is. It and is. it sounds awesome. Yeah, there, there was a lot. Uh, unfortunately, in the later books, they started bringing in definite, uh, different authors. And shit fell apart. I will say, though, as an aside... Uh, for books that inspire you. Books with pictures are great. It's okay. In fact, books with pictures can be just fine, uh, especially when the players, you know, because you can describe a guy in armor to your heart's content. The style of armor he's wearing. You can say, oh, it's got a lot of, you know, gothic angles to it. And, you know, it's got a chest plate that folds here and here. And the helmet comes up kind of like a stovepipe that tapers down towards the neck. And all of your players will all have a different idea of what that is. And they'll all like. visualize something a bit different, but if your game world is very specific, but you have a picture to show them of some random art you found, and you you know pass it around the group, you can be like, this is the traditional armor of the land you're in. So when you see a knight, they're going to be looking a lot like this. 
Plus or minus variants. Plus or minus variants. And this is the same way with books. If you're reading some obscure book, there might there are uh, quite a few. I think I still have some in my collection of novels where you crack it open in the middle and there's like little color center panels in there that have pictures of like dragons and hobbits and druids and knights, mm -hmm. fairies and shit. Well, maybe not the shit part, but you, you get the idea. Yeah, I mean, not not everything's written like H.P. Lovecraft, where some uh, a word is, or an item is described with like seventeen fucking words. I mean, on the flip side, that sort of description is really, really good if you're good at it. If yeah. you have the talent to draw out that sort of imagery with your words, you can do amazing things, and you won't necessarily need to craft a picture. But it can help. Like, I can, you know, I've drawn a fair bit of inspiration, and I've had idea portions where I wanted to incorporate, like, the Zerg or the Protoss into a D&D campaign, because Which it was pretty be... much the first five years of UGMing. I mean, yes. <laughs> Let's be real here. I It was a large phase, but it was a phase. It'd still be interesting to see, like, a Save the World from the Zerg sort of campaign. That'd be neat. I don't think anyone's ever done it. Why the fuck would I do that when I, my queen could be a flesh beast? Two kinds of people. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm just that sick fuck whenever I read over uh, and again, going back to Vampire the Masquerade when, it, when they started talking about vicissitude I'm like, can you imagine that? And they're like, what? I'm like, railing a gal who can flip herself inside out while you're doing it. That'd be great, wouldn't it? And they're just like, gross! And I'm like, nah, there's nothing gross about it. <laughs> I mean, to each their own. To right? each their own. I'm just, I'm just saying, though, you know, like Zerg Attack, and I'm like, hey, there's a flesh beast. Can she flip herself inside out, you know, while, you know, we have a little, you know, in-out, in-out love dog action going on? I mean, she could flip you inside out. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> and she may or may not actually require physical contact to do it. I'm just so. saying, you know... If it's in the act of coitus, it, it might be, um... It might be a fatal, but it would be definitely a way to go. Just saying. There's well, worse ways to go. There's worse ways to go. True. Infestation. But, you know... I mean, you I've, know, I've, getting I've, a hand job from Pinhead. Well, the basics of what you're talking about for having a invasion of a biotech-based, you know, species that's looking to take over... You can look at the Star Wars role-playing game, the older one with the fucking Uzan. Oh, there we go. Just saying. Just saying. I mean, there's Uzan Vong, there's Zyktix in Rift, there's Zerg, there's... Oh, what were they called in... I don't know. Well, there was what the Starship Troopers. Oh, uh, they're called Bugs. Bugs in that. There's... Um, in the Warhammer universe, there... They're another swarm, and I can't remember what they're called. Elves. I mean... Yeah, they're called elves. <laughs> we're not talking about goblins elves. No, 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 no. Because no, I know no, exactly... No, we're, we're talking about Warhammer, and you said there's a swarm, so my no, mind goes to uh, swarm of something that must die. Tyranids. Elves. Oh, Tyranids. No, Tyranids are okay, actually. I mean, you get a Tyranid drunk, and give him a box of crayons, you're going to have a great night. <laughs> Serious. There is nothing like rolling down through Moscow at 1 o'clock in the morning with a drunken Tyranid in a stolen cop car. Tell you what, that is a fucking adventure to have. <laughs> you will come home to the stateside like three weeks later, sober up, and be like, Suka Balat! That was great! Just saying. Just saying. Well, so we've, we've gotten on the stories and worlds and stuff, but maybe we bring it back to characters, because, like, where are some characters y'all have played that are almost pulled from, you know, a small collection of characters from literature or just straight one-for-one one out of literature? Well, uh, there was always the infamous one that got spudged by uh, Narciss wielding a cursed sword and his family tree, which was heavily inspired by StarCraft. Actually, yeah, I've... I've... Like, I took uh, names, and I, I took little attributes. Like, the second character... Oh, yeah, yeah, you did. He was modeled after 
a Protoss High Templar, sort of, you know, gliding around like an inch off the ground, right? That was his shtick. He was a uh, kineticist, so he, his aspect was air and electricity. Blasto Mage, basically. El Blasto. But, you know, he had, for a human or even elf, just ridiculously long hair, and he wound up keeping it in braids to keep it from dragging around. He had, you know, but his, a lot of the characters' names, and even the, the goddess name that I got to pick, were all characters from StarCraft. Specifically, StarCraft II Wings of Liberty. And See? Heart Told you it was quite a phase. It, hey, it was a phenomenal story arc all the way to the end, and it was masterfully done. And then you got killed by a dwarf with a god complex. Yep. The first character <clears throat> spotched. And that is still the only character I can ever say if he had dealt me one more point of damage, I'd have survived. Isn't that funny? It is. It is. It is the only... Because he... Like, I think he had a zeal effect from being an Inquisitor. If he took more than his maximum hit points in damage, he would instead be set to one. I would have survived with one more point of damage. <laughs> it gives him one turn to go, Oh, crap! Maybe I'm not good enough for this spot yet. Uh... <laughs> I've had a number of characters who were developed, designed, or otherwise inspired by books. Uh, early on, I would have to say my most influential character out of my entire portfolio, the one that did the most and has become kind of a reoccurring character, and some of you guys have met him in Vegas uh, in our recent Risk campaign, though you haven't really met him himself yet because <clears throat> he's a master of faces and he has no face but he is all faces and yet none but it's all part of his background uh, based him off of Greek tragedies because uh, the early heroes that we uh, know of is like Jason and the Argonauts or Hercules we take these heroes out of myth lore and legend you know we take Achilles they are very human-like characters. They have exceptional strength or durability, or they're just they're really fucking up. lucky. They're cranked up to 11. And the gods are interested in their... Exploits. ...overall well-being, or they're not interested in their overall well-being and very uh, mean about it. <laughs> you know, water balloons from Hera kind of shit. Only, of course, yeah. those water balloons are probably filled with poisonous bees that spit venom. Regardless... Or lion, or... So, uh, my character was going by a code name when I first made him because I just couldn't think of a really good sounding uh, Greek name off the top of my head that didn't sound. Herpistopheles. I, I didn't want him to sound like anything that was already established. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't want to go with something that was like overly well known, like Mr. Papadopoulos. That would just been, no, too easy. Uh, so, it took a while to come up with like his not code name. Uh, but I based them off Greek tragedies, and I played that character. And unfortunately, the GM I had didn't help because uh, he was playing. He was basically GMing for the Mary Sue at the table, which really didn't help with the Mary Sue. So basically, the GM is DMing a game for one person who happens to be playing a diva. And so I became more or less the god of failure, because mm. um, like almost nothing I could do was the right thing. But, like in any Greek tragedy, I learned to roll with it. Both in character and out of character. Because <laughs> I'm evil that way. <laughs> uh, so I started to develop the character in his own way. And as the um, main character of our party decided to pick things up that were better than what they already had, they would throw away whatever was left over. They're like, oh, I bought a better vehicle. I'll just throw the old one away. Don't care. Yeah. So basically, it's like a spoiled kid just throwing away the old toys. They don't even bother trying to get anything out of it because they've basically been given it for free. So I'd walk up and I'd just scoop it up. So I was basically a garbage man collecting all these wonderful toys. And it got to the point where the main character was not even bothering to loot bodies. And I'm like, uh, really? We just shot down an entire mercenary company. A well-armed and well-financed mercenary company. 
mine. And I'll take this, and I'll take this, and I'll take this, and I'll take this. And I just started throwing shit in my bag. And then one day, uh, we decided we were going to take on this giant, horrible, psychic monstrosity. And if I ever show you my wrist books, uh, this monstrosity and his abilities once we get done with this campaign, you will see why this creature scares me in and out of character. It's one of those things. It's like going to Ravenloft. I'm just like, no. Oh. So I pulled a two-wave nuclear strike on this, and the GM's like, where did you get all this stuff? And I just start laying papers all across the table. I'm like, this is all stuff that character over there has thrown away and said they no longer care about. You said, okay, they threw it away. It's no longer relevant. Well, I've been picking it up. All this stuff is mine. And while they've been just running around throwing shit away, I have amassed an empire of shit. I have guns, I got weapons, I have drones, I have orbital platforms, I have an army at my disposal. All things that player's thrown away. And so I just like, a total great tragedy, I had my moment. Mm -hmm. Right, so all the way up through the game, I am just fail mode, fail mode, for like almost two years, fail mode. Then we get to a point where we're like, well, how are we going to take this on? You know, you practically need an army, and I'm like, I'm fucking nuking it. <laughs> what? And the GM's like, how are you going to nuke it? And I'm like, I have all of this, and I already have battle plans drawn out. Here you go. Read it and we'll weep. Read it and fucking weep. And this uh, playing this character, uh, ironically, as a Greek tragic hero, made me a better role player. Uh, because I was in that mindset of Greek tragedy, so when bad things happened to my character, I really didn't take it all that personally. That's the way a Greek tragedy is supposed to happen. But like Hercules, when my time came to shine, I fucking, I fucking walked in and fucking waffle stomped. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so when our last game session came, the character who has no face yet, many faces, Scythernopolis the Wonder, had been born. He was a demigod who could go anywhere and be anyone at any time he chose. Because he was nothing, yet he was everything. So all these failures he took just made him more nothing, until the nothing was part of everything. He is the dark void in space between stars. That's fantastic. And this DM made that happen by making me fail over and over. All it did was just make me expand to become stronger. So that was a character that was based off of books was just Greek tragedies, and I played the character up as a Greek tragedy, and when bad shit happened, yeah, I did take it personally a little bit, but no Greek tragedy starts off with the hero walking in and saving the fucking day. Yeah, there's supposed to be development and character growth and yeah. learning of limitations and then surpassing them. Oh, and there, there were moments of that, and just like Greek tragedies, like in Hercules, where uh, he killed his own family. My character went through a tragedy where he... Uh, uprooted a tree and then felt guilty about knocking down a nearby town with said tree at high velocity. Blips. Well, it's Rifts, and he was a demigod, and he was super strong, and the rules are way unbalanced when it came to God, so yeah. Um, <laughs> when I threw my tantrum, I rolled really well, better than I normally do in combat. And just mollywopped the entire town. But like smushed. a great tragedy, I felt bad about killing innocent people afterwards and tried to make amends, so I went on my own, like, personal quest to make sojourns yeah uh that was a character i based a lot off of books especially the greek tragedies like iliad and old greek legends mm -hmm. what about you dude well you all know shadwell oh oh i yeah i've i've redesigned shadwell a bit for pathfinder <clears throat> 2e but he's taken almost directly and blatantly out of uh um what was it Good Omens by Terry Pratchett and Neil Gaiman. Um, I've taken some other inspirations, like my Edmond Morel character, who is really an amalgamation of the best attributes of all the characters in The Count of Monte Cristo. Um, all three of them? Mm, no, there's like six good characters. Okay. I took the... Uh, Okay. Edmund's uh, sense of right and wrong. I took um, Jacopo's just gung-ho attitude and wanting to help his friends. Uh, and then I took a bit of the uh, ultra... What's the word for it? So the, the tailor 
uh, I can't, uh, Katarus, he had a bit of a superstition about him until he became a criminal and then he was like, fuck it, I don't care anymore. So I took that superstition and put that on my guy for him being super, like, it's hard, he's got the, um, he's got a thing on him so that if you try to give him an assist instead of a DC-10, it's a DC-15, he's paranoid. It's mm. paranoid. Yeah, he doesn't trust people. Well, I wouldn't either, especially in Count of Monte Crisco. Yeah. Uh, but for the most part, other characters, I really draw on different things. Sometimes just a funny name or other stuff. But my characters that I really have put a lot of effort and work into, like even Takumi, my other occultist. I drew a lot of his stuff from... Well, there he goes. Yeah, sorry, folks. It's getting late Work this schedule. <laughs> um, uh, you'd think the light would help, but clearly that's not doing much. No, that thing's a piece no. of shit. It hurts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, again, I only got a few hours sleep before we did this. Um, but uh, he was taken from a lot of my favorite anime characters that weren't like, I have superpowers and I will be the greatest. They were just characters who were like, yeah, no, I can totally do some stuff. Very down-to-earth characters. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Non-powered all the way, like uh, Ikichi Onizuka and a bunch of the characters from GTO, Great Teacher Onizuka, who were just normal people and just their personalities and stuff. And the whole, oh, my mom's alive and she's not the mom I knew, but she she's out there. I took that directly from one of the breakdowns of the characters when he found out some stuff about his mom and... It's just a lot of fun when you can take stuff like that. Characters I know so well because I've read the manga and watched the show so many times that I can just transition into that mode quickly. Yeah, you're taking, like, analysis points mm -hmm. out of these characters. <laughs> or, like, when I played uh, Peck Peck. <laughs> just every Peck. redneck trope I could think of. Every fucking cliche redneck thing it was him. Yeah, I it worked fantastic. I am surprised that suit of armor didn't have a cowboy hat. <laughs> it, it was going to. It was going to have a uh, cold steel cowboy hat. Oh, yeah. I've got. I've gotten to the point though. Like, I don't know what it is. Like, I can look at a picture now. Mm -hmm. I just and I've I've hit this funk in my role playing stuff. Like, I really don't care anymore. Like, uh, as far as books go, like I was doing one character and. She was still in college and worked as a barista and, like, took care of her sickly mom. It's a superhero game, so you got to have a sickly parent in there. Something and, keeping you down to earth. You know, the GM explained the uh, the character creation stuff, and I was like, well, shit, what am I going to do with this character? So I made her have, I think it was eight skills out of, like, a lot. But eight of her skills, she had, like, mastered. Three of those eight skills were PhDs, straight up. Like, mm -hmm. mathematics, physics, you know, STEM fields. And so the superhero game I was doing, she, uh, the character I was playing was a savant. Yeah. But the reason they didn't go work for some big university or do anything with that education is, of course, superhero game, sickly parent. Mm -hmm. So it was more of that psychological... Uh, mind point to play the character as somebody who would take care of family <clears throat> before going out and becoming a corporate drone because it's hard to take care of a sick family member when you can't see them face to face kind of shit uh the thing is the character's superpowers were really weak and here's the fun part all right so if anybody can figure out how to get through a goddamn door it's reed richards so basically what I was playing was a cross between uh, Mr. Fantastic, Reed Richards. Uh, that was the primary inspiration for like the character's outlook on how they performed laboratory work and dealt with things with just a splash of the disassociative connection to the material world as we know it. Because when you're hyper smart, it's hard to talk to people. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's it's very difficult to dumb down yourself yeah. to the level of dialogue. And yeah. So this character was, like, hyper-intelligent uh, to the point where they were disconnected from everybody else. So another part of that was Reed Richards crossed with Dr. Manhattan. And here's the fun part. 
We get paid like $10 million by the U.S. government for our assistance in helping to stop an ongoing alien invasion. And I look at it while everybody else in the party is happily accepting their money. A character with a, about 350 IQ, three PhDs, eight bachelor's degrees, you know, multiple doctorates and shit, looks at the money, looks at the TV monitor, looks at the CIA guy and says, I'm not as dumb as you think I am. Where am I going to spend the money in a collapsing economy? Paper is not going to go very far right now. And the character could teleport 30... All my powers were super weak because no uh, character starts off at 100%. Like I said, even Dr. Manhattan had to figure out how to put himself back together again. Uh, Reed Richards didn't know how to do stretchy, stretchy thing day one. It yeah. took him a while. So this character was basically day zero hero. You know, room for growth. Room for growth. She barely knew a thing outside of the academics. She was still getting in uh, into league with her powers. And one of which was being able to teleport 30 feet. Here's the irony. So <laughs> super educated. Brilliant. Brilliant. 350 IQ. That's unheard of. But it was there on the character sheet. She's... She could take neutrinos and hypercharge them, throw them through your body, and transport you through time with charge neutrinos. If anybody can Jesus. figure it out. Yeah. Dude. She <laughs> that was, was the character to do it with. She was a, basically the hyper-smart science character. Because everybody else was knuckle-dragging ground pounders. Yeah. And here's the irony. I based the character off Dr. Manhattan and Reed Richards. And I played her lack of emotional stability to the same way, leaning more towards Dr. Manhattan. Disassociative. The other players decided I am a frigid bitch with weak sauce powers that were only good for tearing through wet tissue paper, and that my offensive attack was no better than a paper cut. So they ditched me. Mm, in yes. character and out of character, basically. <laughs> I'm left over there with a coloring book doing nothing. <laughs> I'm like, all right, well, fuck you guys if you need help. Because you're driving away from the military base to go break somebody out of an asylum out of range of my teleport, and you haven't turned your radios on to talk to me. Fuck you! <laughs> so what it boils down to is they actually get to the asylum... They get inside, and they're supposed to uh, break out a prisoner that is under maximum super-duper mega security lock-in key because he's a fellow meta. So they're going to have locks upon locks. And tools and, and tools safeguards and, and anything that you could do. Anything that you would think of that you would need to lock down Superman anything if you, Superman was not exactly. being compliant. Well, to get through one of the barriers, you could go through a vent. Turns out... Was it a vent or an event? No, no. It was, well, it might have been an event. There could have been wires in it. The, the thing is, though, all the rest of the players were too large to fit in the vent. The only one small enough to fit in said vent was currently programming a new virus back at a CIA black site. And, you know, trying to retro-analyze uh, the alien communication signals on her own volition. Might as well still... Like, to see if she could actually break a translation program and inject it in there and find out what the aliens were talking about. Mm-hmm. No. They ignored her. That's why she's off doing her own thing. Because it's fascinating. This this is high science, for fuck's sake. An alien language? Mm-hmm. Okay. Alien language, alien tech, alien transmission yeah, methods? Yeah, yeah. Like, that's a scientist, like, it, it's fucking a gushing dream. dream. World, yeah, world-changing wet dream. Um... But of course, the, they, they're all too big to get through the vent. But there's a door. It's magnetically sealed. Everybody else is playing. Like The only one that might have had a chance to figure it out was a cheap knockoff of Batman. Mm-hmm. But who could get through a magnetically sealed door? Maybe somebody with electrical engineering degrees. Or that could teleport. Or physics degrees. <laughs> yeah. Or could teleport the 17 inches it would take to get through a door. Because <laughs> she could phase through solid objects and pass through doors. And it's well within her 30-foot range of teleportation. 
Blip. They spent an hour in game trying to figure out how to get through a door. Door. I could have walked up, popped the panel off. Oh, computer engineering degrees. Ding, 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 ding. Ding, ding, my way through the fucking uh, security <laughs> alarms. And, and the, what I'm trying to illustrate with this uh, is two things. Number one, don't ditch your party members because you think they're weak sauce. Even if they are weak sauce, they may have something that they haven't told you about on their character sheet that could contribute to a challenge coming up in the future. Plus, it's a shitty thing to do to other people at the table. In general. And secondly, when you're building a character who's based off of books, and in this case, Reed Richards and Dr. Manhattan, feel free to go crazy with the number systems and then build your character so they verge in another way. This like, is your character, th not this their is your story character, retold. Not, exactly. So... Uh, even though they were disassociated like uh, Dr. Manhattan, they're not trying to build like some sort of machine that will eradicate shit. They're more interested in the complexity of the science. That's She's a savant with a, a challenge. Lot, she no, likes a challenge. She had that women's curiosity that women get. She liked to figure things out, how they work. You know, Maybe if she could just talk to the aliens, get them to understand that Earth isn't a threat, or find out what they're talking about. So it was a more feminine mindset from that point, but it's also curiosity. Lots just, of curiosity. Yeah, it's just raw-level science curiosity. Exactly. Which, I, I don't know if you've ever met a scientist that isn't curious, but they are very few and very far between. Oh, dude, you mm. get a scientist talking about science stuff, and they just fucking light up like a Christmas tree. <laughs> Speaking of Christmas trees, we might want to end this one before the holiday season passes us by. Oh, shit, did I get on a rant again? Yeah, a little bit. Oh, shit. So, I'm sorry, guys. Well, final thoughts. Um, when it comes to pulling inspiration for a world or a character or even just an encounter, pull from everything. If you like comic books, manga, online comics, uh, fucking, I don't know, those stupid little church books that they used to leave in, like, men's rooms and shit. If you find something you think it's interesting, run with it. Dark Dungeons. I should run a game based off that. Do it. I fucking dare you. I will show up to that game. Every I cast time. mind bondage on my mom. Well, <laughs> yeah, just snort at the end. Just seal that. Ugh. Dude, you should see that panel in the book. Man. Look at the picture. She looks like she's snorting like that. Oh, uh, goodness. Her nose is all curled up like a fucking pig thing. It's creepy. <laughs> so, yeah, just, just pull from as many sources as you can. And, you know, this can go, you know, piggybacking, is this can go with anything. This could be, like, we were talking about, oh, I'm going to take this little sliver, plus this little sliver, plus this little sliver, plus this little sliver, throw it in a blender, and I have a pie. It works. Sometimes it works that way. And it's just, you have to be able to take a look at things and see why, or look at the little things that make up these characters, break them down. And you can do that with any character from any media, any storytelling, any anything. You know, even if it's just, I have an idea. And then you're like, well, why does this work? How does this character get to that sort of thing? And you just sort of run with it. Because the best characters are the ones that evolve organically. Uh, my final thoughts, and I'm going on... Decades of anger, rage, and hatred, and malice, and spite, and salt, and <clears throat> gorilla urine, whatever else, and snakes and snails and puppy dog tails. There is a line between plagiarism and playing homage. It is okay to get inspired to create a character and inject them in your game, whether you're a player or a GM. But if it's a dark elf with a bow, chances are you are going to elicit sneers, jeers, and eye rolls from everybody else, even though that's what inspired your character. If it's a first-time playthrough, no problems. People expect that. It's the same if you're designing a world. If you go out and name a town after your favorite death metal band, and everybody winds up in the town of Emperor... It's probably not going to go over as well as you want. Uh, but paying homage is one thing. Plagiarism is another. And if you want to inject something into your character or your game, the best way to do it is to go subtle. 
and basically keep it as your own private joke. It's a lot cooler that way to let it be discovered slowly over time. Then just jump right up and tell them, oh yeah, the name of this town is Godzilla versus Mothra. That just really wouldn't work, but if you have two super monsters clash out near the end of the battle after a lot of buildup, you might get a better response. I'm just saying. Be inspired. Don't plagiarize, please. Game Goblin, going back to my crypt. Darth Blasphemous, signing off. Kazakhan, back to the skies. I like big butts and I cannot lie. You weather brothers can try to deny, but when a girl walks in with a ditty bitty waist and a round thing in your face, you get sick.